0: As we focus in this evening, as we think about what it means to be made in the image of God, to be his representatives in his world, we're going to read from verse 26 of chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 2. So Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked,
1: and they felt no shame. Thanks, Rosie. Let's um, pray together as we come and look at this passage. I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Heavenly Fathers, we come to this fourth week in this series and we consider this really important subject of what it means to be created in your image. Please would you help us, help us to understand some of the difficult things in these verses. Please encourage us that you created us in your image and help us to see something of the depth of all that this means. And I pray that you'd be with us now and help us to learn together. Amen. Great, well do um, keep your Bibles open, It'd be great. We're going to refer back to particularly uh, parts of chapter 2. Um, just uh, up on the screen will come a little summary of where we've been so far. It just might be helpful for you. What we've tried to do in the last few weeks is kind of look at Genesis 1 and 2 through kind of different lenses, as it were, different ways of understanding these amazing chapters. And I hope, uh, if you're anything like me, as I've been preparing, you're recognising that these chapters are amazingly complex, amazingly rich. And yet there's so many great simple truths that we can draw from them. Uh, We're going to be putting the series together next week with week five. Uh, But this week we're focusing uh, on the humanity lens. I guess it's the complete opposite of where we started in the first week where we focused on who God was. Um, I think this is perhaps one of the most important of the the five weeks we're going to look at. And here's the real real reason why. This is, I guess, the big question that that humanity is always asking. And maybe you've asked this question of yourself. Uh, Who am I? When it comes to this idea of identity, I guess uh, often we find our identity in our work. and We're going to come back to that later. Um, There's some good in that, but there's some major dangers in that. You can probably think about it. You've seen the prevalence and the rise of counselling and therapies over the years as, as different people have sought to help us to understand our identity. Now, many of these have been helpful. Many have been very unhelpful. But it's interesting that in a world where we're increasingly confused over this issue of who are we, there's more and more therapies and counselling out there trying to help us. But the great thing is that I think that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 um, teach us that God is really, really interested in this subject. He wants us to understand who we are. I don't know if you've noticed, and I think I referenced this earlier, that in the days of creation, from day 1 through to day 6, the writer gives increasing detail. If you just look down at chapter 1, you'll see days 1, 2, 3 are quite short, but as He begins to build towards the climax of creating mankind in his image. The writer puts a lot more time into it. There's a lot more detail. That's probably not an accident. He's probably trying to tell us something. I showed you this diagram, didn't I, in I think week one, possibly week two, saying that Genesis 1, in many ways, is trying to point us to a climax of creation, the creation of mankind in God's image. That's really the pinnacle of what God was doing in those different creative acts. And so, in a world where we're very confused and we ask this question, who am I? Genesis 1 and 2 wants to help us. And so perhaps quicker than turning to counselling and therapy, we ought to turn to God's word uh, to help us with that question. I think one of the areas where we're perhaps most confused is over the whole area of sexuality. Just in this introduction, I want to give you three examples of things I've seen on the news in the last few months and years Uh, I guess some of this might shock you, but it might be a bit of a wake-up call to illustrate how confused we are as a nation. Um, In the past, I guess we would more simply understand that we are male or female. That was quite a clear distinction. Uh, But now there's that phrase there that you'll see on the screen, uh, gender fluid. And it's a a big buzzword that you'll read now. Uh, There's increasing push for us to understand this thing called gender fluidity. Uh, I think it's really frightening. Here are two uh, famous people. Anyone know who they are? Obviously not famous. For the younger generation, that's Miley Cyrus at the top and Carla Delvin. Um, Apparently really good at music, and uh, you can listen to their music and buy their stuff if you really want. Both of these people have publicly said that they are gender fluid, which means that they don't want to confess that they are male or female. They want to keep their options open. It is bizarre, but that is uh, people we see on the media... Here's something I saw on the BBC News recently. Um, Beyond he and she, the rise of non-binary pronouns. That sounds a bit of a mouthful. It's basically this idea that increasingly people want to define themselves not by I am a he or I am a she, but by alternatives. A lot of this has been driven by two particular influences. One is this thing here called the Peter Tatchell Foundation, which is doing a lot of good work, but a lot of damage as well. This whole idea of speaking out for human rights and if people want to express themselves with an alternative sexuality to male-female, then this organisation is trying to help them to do that. Perhaps one of the other big influences is Stonewall. I don't know if you've heard of Stonewall. Uh, You can see up here the little strap line. Um, Acceptance without exception. And This is an organisation that's particularly lobbying for um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender um, community. Uh, but these, these, these communities, these organizations are having a lot of influence in our world. Um, I'll just give you a few examples of what it's doing. Here's um, an article that was on the Christian Institute website. This uh, particular survey was conducted down in Brighton amongst school um, pupils. And in the particular survey, the teenagers were given 25 different options for gender. I think that's quite frightening. Here's my um, Facebook page. If you don't understand or use Facebook, it's basically a a social uh, media website where you can set up a profile, um, share resources, pictures, post things about yourself or things you're up to. Um, When you come to sort of put your end details in, this is my account here, you can put in whether you're male or female. There's also a button here which appeared not that long ago called custom. These are some of the options you have. You can call yourself gender fluid, you can call yourself gender variant, gender queer. Some of these things I haven't even got a clue what they're about. The frightening thing is there are 72 different gender options on Facebook. And they're only there because people want to express themselves in other ways than simply male and female. That is the culture that we're growing up in, it's the culture that our children are being exposed to in school. I'm really saddened by this, and I think we should be deeply troubled by it. But it does express a generation that's completely confused. Here's something, the BBC World Service, this came up on my Facebook page. Here's a school in Brighton that is seeing itself as progressive. And here it's, as part of Brighton's progressive approach to gender identity, now the boys and girls can choose whether they come to school in a skirt or trousers. That's happening right now in Brighton. And here's the last one. This is an article about sports people that increasingly there's this big debate over the Olympics. And if a person is physically a man but feels he is a woman trapped in a man's body, there's campaigns now to allow him to compete in female events in the Olympics. Well, you just take the men's 100 meters. Men and women are biomechanically made differently. Men are always faster. It could get to a point where a physical man is running in a woman's race because he calls himself a woman. These are just some of the things, and it's kind of mind-boggling. I I saw some of this this week, and it slightly scared me. I read as well that um, university applications in America, just this last year, 1% of people who applied put themselves down on their application as not male or female. That's 50 out of every 5,000 students. Why do I share all this with you? I share this because I believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is absolutely foundational to us understanding who we are, and utterly foundational as we seek to live in a culture that is increasingly proliferating some of these ideas that you've seen on the screen behind me. So what I want to do uh, this this evening is just begin by giving us a kind of big picture of what I feel Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us about the image of God, and then we're just going to focus in on three particular truths that I hope will really help us to grasp something. Um, So let's have a look together. If you have your Bibles open, turn back to Genesis chapter 1. I guess the, the key verses come in chapter 21, 26 and 27. And the verses I'd like you to look at are the ones in bold there. What we see in Genesis is that Adam was created in God's image. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, God says, And then at the bottom, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Then in chapter 2, you see that Eve was created in the image of God. uh, Sorry, in the image of Adam, who was created in the image of God. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man. So the writer is saying that man and woman were made of the same stuff. Man and woman were both created in the image of God. And then you read through to chapter 5, Adam and Eve's son was created in their image. Uh, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. So what the writer is trying to say is Adam created in the image of God. Eve created in the image of Adam, in the image of God. Adam and Eve's son created in the image of Adam and Eve, created in the image of God. It's a kind of pattern which the writer is reinforcing. And it's a pattern that continues to you and me. So you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Paul declares the same truth. He speaks about just as we have been born the image of the earthly man. So Paul is trying to declare exactly the same thing, that all of humanity bear the image of God. But then of course you get to the fall, where mankind, and we're going to look at this next week, where mankind turn our back on God, We no longer want to live God's way. We never want to live in his world with him at the centre. And what happens is that image that God has created gets broken. The image is not destroyed, but it's very marred. So if I held up, I haven't got it here, but if I held up a mirror in front of me and you saw yourself in it, and then I smashed the mirror with a hammer, you'd still see yourself, but it'd be a broken image. And that's a bit about what's happened in Genesis chapter 3, where when God created us in his image, we still bear his image, but it's broken, it's marred. And so really what the rest of the Bible about is about, at least in part, is God wanting to restore his image in mankind. So you get to a couple of passages in the New Testament, and these are wonderful verses, so rich. Paul talks about Christians putting on their new self, which is being renewed. So that's an act that God is doing in us and through us by his Spirit, Renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. And I think perhaps a little more clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about us as Christian believers. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. That is an amazing thing to ponder, isn't it? That if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, what he wants to do through the rest of your life, that great verse in Philippians, he's begun a good work in you, he'll bring it through to completion. Part of what that means is restoring his image in you again. Human beings in the garden perfectly reflected their creator. In a fallen world, we imperfectly reflect our creator. But God is wanting to grow within us again, that image, so that we become more Christ-like. And as we become more Christ-like, as his image is restored in us, actually what's happening is we're becoming more human again. Because the fall reversed some of that. That's an amazing prospect to think that God is in the business of renewing us. And then you carry this through, right through to the end of the Bible. And again, we'll look at this next week. And John, in one of his letters at the end of the Bible, declares, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? You look at your own life, I look at my life, all my brokenness, All the ways I fail to reflect God perfectly and in heaven I will be like my saviour. That just blows my mind. I like this little girl, maybe it was a little boy, it was a little boy called Tommy. (laughs) That would be an unfortunate name for a little girl. Tommy, who wrote this little cartoon, um, God I want to be just like you when I'm your age, okay? I love that. When you look look down at chapter 20, uh, chapter one verse twenty six, there's a great little phrase there where God says, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness." Just two things I want you to focus in here. Focus on that word "image." Notice that this is a phrase that's used exclusively of human beings. When the animals were created, what was the phrase? God created the animals according to their kinds, species identification. Animals were different, but they were created according to their kinds. The difference is when God created man and woman, he created us in his image. And think about that phrase likeness there. It's not really speaking about physical representation. I'm not saying that we physically look like God. God is spirit. God in human form, when he came to this earth, came to the earth in the body of a human being. But God God in His fullness his spirit, he doesn't look like you and me. When you read sort of uh, theological books, they might you might come across these two little phrases, um, communicable attributes and incommunicable. They're a bit of a mouthful, but what the, this distinction is trying to say is there are certain attributes that you and I and God share, certain things He has passed on to us. So, He and I, He and you and I are rational, moral, spiritual, social, creative. There are certain attributes that God is, which he has shared with us, that we have a privilege in sharing in. But there are certain attributes that are incommunicable, that he doesn't communicate or doesn't share with us. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. You and I are very differently not. He is omniscient, he knows everything. You and I very definitely don't. Um, he is the creator, we are the creature. He is completely independent and self-sustaining. We are completely dependent and he sustains us. So there's certain attributes that we share with God. There's certain attributes that we don't. I hope that helps you a little bit to uh, grasp something of what it means to be created in the image of God. Let's have a look at, I guess, three sort of foundations, really dig deeper into what this little phrase means, where it says that God created us in his image. The first one is quite a simple one. It's that our image is rooted in God's nature. When Steph and I were in Rome not long ago, we popped into the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. And here is a part of a painting that Michelangelo painted on the roof of the Sistine Chapel. Um, I've seen this up in someone's house this week. I, don't remember, I think it might be the Woods house. I've seen it up in... Um, Basically, Michelangelo in this picture was trying to depict this phrase being created in the image of God. And you can see on the screen there, there's God surrounded by his angels. and It's as if as he reaches out when he creates Adam, he is passing on his image. That's what this picture is showing. And It really matters that our image is rooted in the character of God because what that is teaching us is that morality and ethics is rooted in the very character of who God is. Or to put it in a different way, right and wrong are not simply kind of uh, relative moral constructs where you and I decide what is right and what is wrong. Although we did see a lot of that last week, didn't we, with the science stuff and seeing how we've turned in on ourselves and we've rejected God. You go back to that that key chapter in Romans chapter 1 that we've often referred to, that little phrase, um, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped created things rather than the Creator. As soon as we turn away from God and we find our identity in anything other than Him, you can see where this begins to go in terms of morality and ethics. Where do we find what is right and wrong? Well, we turn in on ourselves and find it in here. I become the sole arbiter of what is right and wrong. That is terrifying. But also what we see is that value is derived or given by God. So go forward to chapter 9 of Genesis, where there's been the flood, chapter 6 to 8, and then God is making a covenant with um, Noah. Notice in chapter 9, verse 6, where he speaks of the sanctity of life. He's warning Noah. And what does he say? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So what the writers continue to say is that you and I must find our identity in God. Our our value is rooted in who he is. Think about how different our world would be if we all grasped that. If all of our morality and our ethics was rooted in the character of God. The second thing we see though is that as image bearers you and I were created to reflect and represent God. We're going to jump around a bit, but you're you're good, so you can do this. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what was that phrase that we began with? First week? In the beginning, God. So here you've got a declaration of God's ultimate rule. Then you get to chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and what? Let them rule. So there's something going on here. God, who is the ruler in the beginning, God, he's passing on to people creating his image something of that rule. He created mankind to rule. And how? We'll go back to chapter 1, verse 5. And God called the light day and the darkness light. Compare that to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And then the climax, chapter 2, verse 23, the man says, she shall be called woman. That naming of creation that was God's prerogative in chapter 1 becomes mankind's prerogative. As God was a ruler in the beginning, God, he passes much of that rule onto us as human beings. And we are then in a position to name, to call, to have authority over his creation. So in part, you and I as his image bearers, we reflect and represent God through exerting authority over the world that he created. But we also represent God by caring for his creation. Do you see in chapter 2 verse 15, what's the command that he gives to Adam and Eve? To work the ground and take care of it. Another translation could be serve and guard. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? If human beings saw their world and their responsibility under God was to serve the world and to guard the world. And primarily, you and I carry out our creation mandate through work chapter 2 verse 15 makes it very clear that work I'm not just talking about paid employment work being creative with the gifts that God has given us this is inherently human now broken because of the fall work that was meant to be a joy has become a bind for many of us you see that in the curses of Genesis chapter 3 but work was meant to be one of the great ways that you and I reflect God now, here's a couple of examples go forward to chapter 4 verse 21 here's the beginnings of engineering Do you see that there, chapter, have I got the verse right for that? Yeah, here here we are. We've got um, some characters who turn up there. It talks about verse 22. They forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And then you go forward to chapter 9, verse 20. You see the beginning of food production. Noah, a man of the soil, produced a pla- um, produced to, uh, proceeded to plant a vineyard. So here you get just some little glimpses of mankind being creative at, at work. Work was meant to be one of the primary ways that you and I reflect the character of God. Because creativity is reflecting who God is. Think about Genesis. God, the ultimate creator. And you and I made in his image are called to use the gifts of our hands to serve our world and be creative too. And that is primarily what work is. But notice that command in chapter 1, verse 28, where God called Adam and Eve to rule over his creation. Having dominion over creation is very different to domineering over creation, or exploiting creation, or abusing creation. The point that the writer is trying to make is that our rule over the world that God has given us is meant to express God's rule. A rule that leads to flourishing. An authority that leads to blessing. So part of the way that you and I reflect God is and represent him is through work and through caring for his creation. And the last thing, which I think actually we're probably the weakest at, is that as image bearers, we were created to represent and reflect God by enjoying his world. I think we touched on this verse last week, but have a look at chapter 2, verse 9. God created trees that were pleasing to the eye, but something else. Sorry, they were good for food, but also pleasing to the eye. God hasn't just created a functional world that works, that provides for our needs. He's also given us a world that we're meant to enjoy. I think often we can get caught up in just the function of life, just going through the routine of our life, doing all that we have to do to survive, to provide all good things, But we never stop to enjoy. The tree is good for food, but we never look at it and experience its beauty. And in a world that I think is increasingly speeding up, in many ways we've all got it completely wrong, because we're rushing all the time to do, to produce. That's part of our creation mandate. But we're also called, as image bearers, to enjoy God's world. When was the last time that you just stopped? sat in the garden and listened to the birds? Just sat still and enjoyed watching your children play? We're not good at it. The younger generation probably worse at it because we're so busy. But part of being created in the image of God is actually to enjoy his world, not just to use it. And maybe we need to think about, are we creating enough space in our life to slow down and enjoy God? And enjoy the incredible richness of what he gives us. But what I hope you see through some of these things. Is that you and I were created to be involved in our world. Not just to be spectators. God has given us his world. And said look after it. Use it. Sadly often we abuse it and don't look after it. But it's worth us thinking about what it means to be image bearers. To represent and to reflect. Both the authority, the care and the enjoyment of God's creation. I want to come to a third one, but I just feel it might be good just to pause there. So let's just um, take a moment to reflect on some of that. Has anyone got any particular reflections, any questions, things that have struck you? If not, why don't you just pause and have a a moment of quiet on your own, uh, particularly focusing on that last uh, challenge. Maybe asking for forgiveness for the times when you... Don't enjoy this world and all that God has given you. Perhaps thanking God for something that you do enjoy every day, but you never slow down enough to actually thank God for it. Shall we just pause for a moment? Let me just pray for us. Father God, it is challenging to think about our world and to realise that part of being your image bearers is to enjoy the world that you've given us. Thank you that you haven't just given us trees that are good to eat, but also pleasing to the eye. Forgive us when we miss your goodness in all the things that we enjoy day by day. Forgive us when we just wolf down our food because it fuels us to do the next thing rather than enjoying the incredible taste that you've given us. Forgive us when we find moments of downtime in a day and we fill it with more stuff to do so we feel productive when actually you're calling us just to be still, to know that you are God. Please would you help us to be your image bearers. To exert a loving, caring authority over the world that you've given us. To care for the world you've given us and to enjoy the world that you've given us. Please help us to help each other. To enjoy every blessing you pour upon us day by day. And perhaps just in this next week, help us in this area to better reflect you. And to better reflect being image bearers. Amen. Well, there's uh, the second thing. As image bearers, we are created to represent and reflect God. The last thing that I really want to focus on is, as image bearers, you and I were created for a relationship. Uh, we've drawn this distinction a number of times. After every creative act, God declared it was good. Then he creates man in his own image. It was very good. And you see this again in chapter 1, verse 27. Here, the writer is emphasizing that you and I were not a biological mistake or an accident. We were created and the writer is trying to focus on this. And what were we created for? Well, at the very heart of all of this, we were created for relationship. I, uh, I was blown away this week. Uh, a guy I was reading on this was really helpful. He said, think about Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And they do, don't they? When you drive out in the morning and you see the beautiful sunrise... But the point that he made was, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, but it's only you and I who bear the image of the Lord. Yes, there's God's fingerprints all over creation, but you and I are inherently different from the world God created, because it's only you and I who God called to carry his image. I think that's staggering truth. What we looked at in the first week was that In Genesis chapter 1, the writer uses a word for God, Elohim. It's a a Hebrew word that speaks of God in his fullness, overseeing creation. God is above creation, in the beginning, God. But in Genesis chapter 2, the name of God changes. You notice in English it will be Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. This is a name speaking of the covenant intimacy of God alongside his sovereign rule. So Genesis 1, God is over his creation. Genesis 2, it's almost as if God draws alongside the people that he has created. And I think it's in part what the writer is trying to do is help us to see that key to being created in his image is being created for relationship. Because God himself is relationship, who's existed for all of eternity as Father, Son and Spirit. And I guess there are three key relationships that the writer draws attention to. The first is relationship with God. I love that little phrase in chapter 3, verse 8. The Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the garden with mankind. Probably not physically walking. I read this as a metaphor for God's presence in the garden. Perhaps you read it differently. But either way, God is there with his people. And we were created primarily for a relationship with God. God was there. He wasn't distant. I guess the other key relationship we were created for was a relationship with our world. And we've seen all the way through that when the world was functioning with God at the center, uh, humanity and creation worked in harmony. So you get these beautiful phrases, chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and the world would bear fruit for mankind. Chapter 2, verse 9, you get this picture of trees bearing good fruit. Chapter 2, verse 10, there is a river watering the garden. There's a kind of harmony between Creation and mankind in the garden, and of course, if you reflect on the fall in Genesis chapter three, that whole thing gets turned on its head, doesn't it? That the ground that was meant to easily bring fruit for for fruit, well, the curse on Adam was now by painful toil you will produce from the ground. So the world ends up turning its back. uh, The the whole way it was created, God at the center, at the top, mankind under his rule, ruling over creation. The whole thing gets turned on its head. God's at the bottom. We forget about him. Mankind stuck in the middle and it's almost like the world is ruling over us. You've just got to turn on the BBC News and we see that. But in the beginning, that relationship that was perfect with God was also perfect with our world. But I guess one of the key relationships though that the writer focuses on is our relationship with one another. Have a look at chapter 2 verse 18. This is the only place in the first two chapters of Genesis where you read that something was not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So, what God is declaring is that solitude is not part of God's created order. I'm not talking about having a moment of quiet if you're an introverted person. He's talking about you and I were created for a relationship with each other. We weren't created to live on separate islands and not interrelate with each other. Someone once joked, Why did God create Eve? Uh, and the response was because was God was worried that Adam would get lost in the garden and not know to ask for directions. God created Adam, but he also created Eve, and together they were going to together best carry out this creation mandate. I want you to focus on chapter 2, verse 19, the next verse, because after God created Adam, he then says, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now a lot of people read this verse and just get on a high horse and start muttering and going, well there we go, this is the problem with the world. Man's in charge and woman's just the helper, the sidekick. But actually this verse is saying the complete opposite. Rather than this being a derogatory term, man is the leader and woman is just the helper. This is actually a phrase that is saying that man cannot live without woman. That's why God created woman. This phrase helper is used 19 times in the Old Testament, 16 of them is a phrase used of God himself. In the New Testament, in John's Gospel, um, when John is speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit, he speaks about the helper. It's the same word. So here, where God says, it's not good for man to be alone, I will create a helper for him. It's not man and a helper, a sidekick. It's man and a helper. God is putting a lot of attention on this helping role, saying that together, they're going to be able to serve me best. It's really a picture of divine help. And notice as well, it's not just a helper, but it's a helper suitable for him. Literally, a helper who has a deep affinity with him. So in in the creation order, what God has done is he's brought together a man and a woman. He's saying together they are meant to partner to serve me using the different gifts that I've given them. A lot of people ask a question, if you go down to chapter 2, verse 22, just a little later on. How did he create Eve? Well, he took a rib from the side of Eve and closed up the area with flesh, and he created Eve. A lot of people say, well, does that mean that man once had more ribs on one side, and now he's got an even number? You could easily read this as he took a rib out, because that's what it says, and you could believe that, there's no problem. But equally, a lot of translations will say he created Eve from the side of Adam, not using the phrase rib. But I think what the writer is emphasizing here, whatever you want to believe about it, is that Eve was made of the same stuff as Adam. Adam was created in the image of God, and then what did God do? He breathed spiritual life into the nostrils of Adam. He became a living being. So when the writer then says that Eve was taken from the side of Adam, what he's ultimately emphasizing is that Eve is like Adam, made of the same stuff, created in the image of God, with spiritual life breathed into her. I came across this this week, which tickled me a bit. Adam was uh, walking in the Garden of Eden. He was feeling rather lonely. So he says to God, uh, So God says to Adam, What's wrong? Adam says, I don't have anyone to talk to. So God says, Okay, well, I'll give you a companion. She'll be called woman. This person will cook for you, wash your clothes. She'll always agree with every decision you make. She'll bear your children and never ask you to take care of them. She'll never nag you. She'll always be the first to admit she's wrong. She'll never have a headache. She'll freely give love and satisfy all your needs. She'll never question your behavior or the company you keep. She'll support you and understand understand that you don't have time to listen to girly nonsense. Adam then says, what will this woman cost me? God says, an arm and a leg. She then says, so what can I get for a rib? (laughs) Men, and this is a challenge to us, women are an incredible gift to us. That is why God created women, to be a blessing, to help us in the work that we're called to do. And one of our roles as men, as leaders of our homes, is to be grateful for the incredible gift that women are to us. And I think often we're not good at that. That word helper there is not speaking of second rate. It's speaking of a divine help that is brought alongside man so that together we serve. Now. Of course this doesn't mean that if you're not married God has not got a plan for your life as if a man and a woman come together and together you serve. It's just a picture that marriage is one of the ways in which God brings together human beings to serve. If you're a single person that's a great gift too and that is what God is God's best for you at this time and he wants you to serve him using the freedom that he gives you as a single woman. One of the things I love about that little phrase taken from the side of Adam or taken from the rib one very ancient commentator put it lovely. He said, "The woman noticed the woman wasn't made out of Adam 's head to top him, nor made out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but made from his side to be equal to him, to have his arm around her to protect her close to his heart so that she can be cherished. I think that's really getting at the heart of what it means. Adam and Eve to be created in the image of God. For Eve to be created from the side of Adam. So three things there that we've seen together. Our image is rooted in God's nature. As image bearers, you and I were created to represent and reflect God. Authority, care and enjoyment. And as image bearers, you and I were made for relationship. Relationship with God. Relationship with our world a relationship with one another. I think that the more that we grasp some of these foundational truths, the more they'll help us in a world where we began, where we're all asking this question, who am I? Because the amazing truth is God hasn't left us to figure out that question. He has declared to us in Genesis 1 and 2 exactly who we are. That we're precious to him, that we were created in his image, that he calls us to work in his world to serve him. And that is the best way that we can honour and glorify him. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but I feel that would be a good place to stop. Um, but what I think would be helpful is to have a bit of time for reflection. Um, it could be a question, but equally it could be something that you've thought about where you could help me or you could help somebody else to learn and think. So this isn't really sort of you to me, it's more us to each other. But a bit of time now just to pause and reflect on some of these truths, perhaps look at one of the Bible texts we've looked at together. Um, I've got a mic here, so it'd be great if one or two could perhaps um, say something. Otherwise, we'll uh, have a time of prayer.
2: Can you hear me? Yes. No. Yeah,
0: great. I, I think often when we use the word image, we think of physical. But do you think some of this word of made in God's image is less physical and more about his personality or some other aspects of God? Is it, is it, does it have to be physical?
1: No, I think I'm trying to make the point earlier. I think it's not physical. Being made in his image, we don't look like him. God, who came to earth in the person of a man, looked like us in that sense. He took on flesh. But God is spirit. He doesn't look like us. Um, But I think being made in his image is more the things that we've been thinking of together, about finding our identity in him, about relationship, about doing what he did in the world. Uh, And I think that's one of the astonishing things, that God, who is the authority, has passed his authority onto us. Uh, to look after his world, uh, so I don't think it is primarily about physical image at all, um, which is good news for many of us, I think.
2: Thank
3: you. Um, when it says that man cannot live alone, for example, like the people who like aren't married or like just don't want a relationship, does that mean they need to have a relationship with a man or a woman, or they just need like a friendship because that's still a relationship?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, It definitely isn't talking about that. Sometimes when you have a difficult question like that, you have to look beyond one passage in the Bible to help you understand that. There are lots of places in the Bible that affirm that Christian marriage is a blessing for many, but it's not the way that God has ordained it for everyone. Um, The Apostle Paul affirms singleness um, in the New Testament in a very positive way. It's not really talking about marriage. The picture that is given is of a man and woman coming together because Adam and Eve were the first man-woman who came together and from them they created the next people who... Uh, filled the earth as the command was, but it 's more talking about relationship and its fullness, and I think in in a church, we need to be really good at this, and much better perhaps we are. Often what happens in life um, is that people get married and then only ever hang out with other married people and you do couplely things and that 's a really bad thing. What we need to be doing is building community and relationships amongst each other and involving people um, in our lives as much as possible. Um, single people have lots to learn from married people and can pray for the pressures that marriage brings. Uh, married people um, can pray for the pressures that singleness brings Um, but I think this idea of solitude and being alone is not really talking about we need to pursue a relationship but we need to pursue relationships in its broader sense of investing in people and I think that's what life is about it's about people it's about opening up our homes opening up our lives um, whatever we do using our gifts to be a blessing to people not just performing functions that makes sense I think particularly for people at your stage of life, I think there's a huge amount of pressure at school, isn't there, for being in a relationship um, often. And I think that's really unhealthy. When it's the right time, it's the right time. But um, more important is to invest in good friendships. Anyone who's been around longer than me got more wisdom on this? Thank you. Can we bring the mic round just so that we can hear you?
2: just really wanted to give an example from my home church there's a young couple who've just had their well a few months ago had their first baby and there's a couple of single girls in our church or no more than several single girls in our church and they invite them into their home I'm always seeing them holding the baby you know Jen is very you know have the baby do the you know she's sharing this baby with these single girls Um, which I think is, is a real example to us in other ways as well Absolutely. Yes, I wasn't. I I I was asking. No, I wasn't. Um, But I was quite impressed with. I'm very impressed, actually, with the um, that God gave man authority, but also the responsibility to care. I agree with the enjoyment too. But the 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 link between authority and caring, Mm. I think, is vital um, for us. And in whatever area we have. Authority, whether it's over your children or over um, your staff in a school or over your workforce in a business, the responsibility is not just to direct but also to care mm-hmm. and to build up and to make fruitful mm. in the way that God intended. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think for those who've got particular authority in um, business situations, um, the authority in the home of a, a man being the head of a household... The whole purpose of that is to serve his family and to lead, to lay down his life, to be a blessing to his family. It's not, I'm the dad and I'm in charge and you'll do what I say and I have control of the remote. It's the complete opposite. It's saying, actually, I'm the head of this home and I want to protect and nurture and bring this family through and help them to flourish. Um, so our idea of authority and the world's idea is very, very different, which is why godly authority is a wonderful thing. Um, sadly, it's abused all the time, though, isn't it? Yeah.
3: With regard to relationships, we were created for relationships with God and with one another. Um, sometimes it can be a, a fine line. Uh, I mean, I can sit in my deck chair in the garden and say I'm having a relationship with God and leave somebody else to get on and do the work. You know. Uh, at the same time, I think of Mary and Martha. Martha was busy scurrying about doing the housework, preparing the meal, while Mary was content to sit at the feet of Jesus and just enjoy Jesus. Mm. Uh, Have we got any guidance on how we can discern where our service starts and our enjoyment Mm. finishes and that sort of grey area? Because Mm. we get uh, busier and busier and busier. And uh, we dig ourselves into a hole if we're not careful. Yeah. Yeah, I I think...
1: I'm fully convinced that the, the gospel is a gospel for all of life. I've said this so many times from here. It's not just a system by which I'm saved. It influences all of our life. Everything we do matters to God. Everything. Um, Steph and I had a good conversation about this the other week with one of our friends who um, is a young mum with young family. And young mums with young families, you'll know that it's just mad. Life is just so, so hectic. And this person was just expressing they love just having long, long periods of time in prayer and being with God. And that's a wonderful thing to do. And I think if mums never ever get that space and time, then as husbands, we've got to do something about that to help them. Um, but in, as we were talking about this individual, we were saying actually, as that mum rushes around and changes nappies and washes and just feels like there's all these balls in the air and she's not juggling them, she's serving God too. And she's not serving God more when she's reading her Bible and less when she's changing nappies. But there is a priority in that if I'm only ever changing nappies, I can't say this is a replacement for reading my Bible and being still before the Lord. Um, So we mustn't drive a wedge between the spiritual of my life, my church, my quiet time, and everything else. As long as I have my quiet time, everything else doesn't matter. God is interested in all of this. But I suspect that for most of us, we err on most of our time being doing. And life has demands, of course it does. I I suspect most of us need to carve out time to be quiet. Um, Jeff, do you want to ask a question? Is that going to feed into that? Uh, Not really, no.
0: Okay, Uh, never mind. to me, there, there appears a, a, an apparent missing link. Um, Adam on his own could not have procreated. So in the creation of woman, um, that, that word helper, I, I wonder if there's not a lot more in that word helper, translated helper, than what we've been talking about now, You know, somebody to help wash the dishes and all that sort of stuff. Um, I know later on you know, it kind of assumes that you know, there will be children coming. But in the initial creation of a woman, nothing explicitly is stated um, the purpose of having a woman as opposed to another man.
1: <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean. Well, I think there is, I, mean, I know I'm not a language scholar and I'm sure someone uh, could help a lot more with that word helper. But I think a lot of the reason, the problem with that word is as soon as we think helper, we think doing the dishes and all that sort of helping around the house. It's not that at all. The emphasis of that word is much more... God brings woman to man because man cannot do what he does without her, cannot fulfill the creation mandate. I mean, at a very simple level, can't procreate. Man needs a woman to procreate um, and and for the flourishing of families. But I think that word helper is speaking much more of this idea of divine help. I do think it's interesting that the very next chapter, what's going to come on the scene, it's Satan and his temptation and God in his wisdom brought woman to man to help him now of course man woman together fell um yeah i'd love to, i don't i'd don't have more wisdom on that i'd love to read and think about it a bit more but i think you're right i'm sure there's a lot more in that word than we we grasp has anyone got any more wisdom on it kathy on the previous one yeah let's go there
2: we were just chatting about this idea of enjoyment and service and all that sort of thing and at least in part surely the Balance has something to do with where your mind is when you are serving. Um, are you doing the dishes and thinking about the kids you need to feed and the job that you 've got to go to the next day or something, or are you appreciating hmm. that you 've got hands that can wash the dishes or maybe even enjoying the hmm. colors in the soap bubbles or something that sorry that 's a NAF example, but to some degree our enjoyment of creation and our caring for creation and our authority over creation can happen together Mm -hmm. and it's not just a go away and sit somewhere, although that's great, Um, you know, stop and smell the roses or listen to the birds or whatever, but there's also a I think to me, especially with the younger people what do you love doing? Then try to work that way if you're thinking about what to take for GCSEs or what jobs to apply for, if the only thing behind it is it'll pay the bills, Hmm. you're going to really struggle with the enjoyment element if God gave us the desires to do things that he wants to bless. Hmm. So I think some of that uh, needs to come together more than seeing them as separate categories.
1: Hmm. Something we've got to cover in church more and more is helping each other to understand how does the gospel affect everything I do? I'd love to just get a list up of kind of 10 really normal things that we all do and think, how does the gospel change this? Because it should. Uh, There was one lady who was a cleaner. She becomes a Christian. She's still a cleaner. She still does exactly the same work. And someone said to her, what's changed? And she says, I now sweep under the carpets. (laughs) Well, why? No one's going to see because you're serving God. And the whole point is you're serving a creator. Who cares if no one sees? I'm going to sweep under the carpets. That is what the gospel does to a cleaner. You think about what that equivalent is in your work or in your life. I think that would be a really good thing, yeah. see.
3: Let me see if I can put my ideas together in an easy English, because that was one of the passages that as a single person, sometimes I didn't want to be in short when they were going to talk about that, and with a group of friends, they always will say, here, here, again, you know, and we knew that the focus will be in a relationship between woman and a man, or a man and a woman. And I like how you put it there, you know, that we were made for a relationship. And you mentioned as well, you know, about single people. Sometimes I think we focus too much, you know, there is about a marriage relationship more than the relationship with God. And as a single person, we really suffer. You know, I really remember at 33, it was a person that will not get married. So it was, sometimes we felt like a, this part of the Bible was not for us because in some ways we were like a failures because we didn't get married so and I remember another friend of mine she said you know I love God I love serving him Lord you know that you are everything to me but I think this part is not clicking with me and and she will say, I loved you and I know that you are my everything but sometimes I need an aunt to say you know well done i'm here with you so i like how you got put in now as a relationship and i think we really need to to care for the young people until the age of 34 i understood the feelings of my friends that were alone and now i cannot feel and i cannot say i understand you to my friend is 40 45 still alone and we always made the joke, you know, that maybe in, in that sense, would be much better to be a Muslim because the relationship was uh, saving women for a man, so we will be all right. But as a Christian, we, we couldn't be in, a, in, in that ratio, you know. So, I, you know, another point I'm trying to make, you know, I would like that we would make the point that God created men and women, but he created us as a relationship with him mm. so that the ones that we got, they don't get married I still would experience that fulfilment... without feeling that they, they were not complete.
1: Yeah, thank, you. thank you. I think that would be a really good place to actually stop... because that's a really helpful point. You know um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism... the chief end of man, the purpose of mankind... is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That means give glory to God in all that we do and enjoy him. And I think that's what we need to think about. We live in a world, just as a, a final point... we live in a world that says, I work therefore I am particularly men, we find our identity in our work. Uh, We also live in a world where relationships define who we are increasingly. Um, But what Genesis 1 does is it speaks into all of that and says, that's not true at all. You are defined, your identity is found in me, God says. I created mankind in my image. And that's where we need to increasingly focus our, our time and attention, is thinking about what it means to be made in his image. Because what I do doesn't define who I am. Who he has created me to be defines who I am. And that's a glorious thing. So should we spend some time praying together, just before we close with our final song? Um, maybe this would be a nice thing for you to do just on your own. Just uh, just have a moment of quiet and reflect on some of these great truths, and uh, thank God that your identity is found in who He is and who He has created you to be. Just want to close by reading that great verse from 2 Corinthians chapter three, where Paul talks about you and I are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Isn't that a wonderful thing to ponder this week? And it says afterwards, and that happens from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's his work in our life, taking all of our experience of life, the highs, the lows, and he's using them all to make us more like Christ. Um, just as I've been preparing this week, I have had a real strong sense of this whole thing of enjoying God, slowing down and, and being with him. And uh, perhaps there's someone here who is feeling like they're just overwhelmed with busyness of life. Um, Amy just wanted to share an encouragement, uh, if that was you. So do you, just, um, do you want to speak into that mic? That'd be great.
3: The way I feel that God speaks to me through pictures, and then God explains what it means. And um, earlier on, when we were, had the short break um, in between the sermon, I saw like a picture of a bird that was flying, and it's just been weighed down. Um, by the burdens of life, the business of life and everything that's going on. The bird is really struggling to keep flying and um, I really feel God just saying it's okay to stop. It's okay to come down and have a rest.
1: Thanks for that encouragement. I would encourage you now, if you are just feeling a bit burdened, don't just rush through to coffee. Why don't you just stay and pray with someone sitting next to you. Ask them to pray with you. Uh, this is a safe place where we can share our burdens and it would be great to continue to encourage each other. But friends, let's go from here and let's be confident that we are being transformed into his likeness day by day. That is a great truth. And let's uh, encourage each other as we see that growth in our lives. Amen.